Bonnie didn't tell me that she was going to be telling that, uh, playing that prelude uh, right now or that offertory, uh, but I know why she did, because she was paying attention to uh, Genesis 6 and the reading about the waters of the flood, and she was paying attention to uh, what we're going to be reading in Scripture right now, uh, and that's going to go back to Noah, and it's going to go back to baptism as well. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's on, if you want to look in the Blue Bibles, page 1016 of the Blue Bibles, or the text is printed in your bulletin. And in just a moment, I'm going to read from verse 18. I'll read the last five verses of that chapter. But just by way of reminder and by way of introduction into this section, last week in the section that is right before this, we had Peter continue his instruction to the church, to the church then and to us now as well, regarding how we are to conduct ourselves in the face of increasing suffering and persecution and marginalization of the church, kind of pushing pushing the church off to the side of society, kind of looking at them as a group of very strange people who are, in fact, perhaps dangerous. Peter told us that when you are and let me say this in a casual way and then understand it in a, in a more full way. When you're getting grief for doing that which is good, okay, that's, a, that's a low way of putting it, or when you're enduring persecution for doing that which is good, then Peter said to us, number one, keep doing good. Keep doing that which is good. Keep your behavior appropriate. Number two, don't be afraid of those who are causing you harm. Instead, sanctify honor Christ Jesus as Lord in your heart. Number three, continue to speak. Tell people the reason for the hope that is within you. So you've got the behavior and the heart and the speech. And then finally, Peter said to us, do all of that with a good conscience. Okay, let your conscience examine all of that so that you're operating with integrity, integrity of heart, integrity of speech, and integrity of behavior as well. Because what Peter is saying, and what he said in this last section for us, is that even when you are suffering for doing that which is good, which seems to us to be so contrary to the way it should be, you shouldn't suffer for doing that which is good, but Peter says even when you are suffering for doing that which is good, you are not outside, but in fact you are suffering according to the will of God. That's where that finalized, right? It ended with Peter saying, according to the will of God. And and he said in there, you're not experiencing cursing from the Lord. What you are, in fact, experiencing is blessing from the Lord. And, And you're not experiencing a hindrance to your own walk with Christ or to your own spreading of the gospel message. Instead, suffering for doing good is giving you an opportunity And you need to be aware of all of those things that are out there. So Peter says, reorient your thinking. In our section today, Peter does what he always does so beautifully and so wonderfully in this letter, is he supports this practical instruction that he's given to us and the things that I just said. They're very practical. And he supports that by doing what he's done already a number of times in the letter. He takes us back to, number one, showing us the example of that in the Old Testament, seeing how God has done this throughout history, and number two, enveloping all of it in the life of Christ. So taking the life of Christ 
and making it a sphere around all of these things that we experience. And so he's taking us now to something that supports the things that we saw last week. He wants our eyes, he wants our hearts, he wants our minds to now go back to Jesus himself. Here now then, the holy, the life-giving word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, thank you for your marvelous, sweet word. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Jesus, thank you for your beautiful victory that secures our hope. Help us to be encouraged with it this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you understood everything that I just read to you, congratulations. You are one of the very few people in history who's ever understood this section of Scripture that I just read for us this morning. Everybody who writes about this passage quotes Martin Luther. I don't know who Luther quoted before him, but they all quote Martin Luther who writes this, a wonderful, or could be translated strange, so I'll say it this way, quoting, a wonderful or strange text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. That's what Luther's reflection on what we've just read together, and here we stand, and, and that it should be uh, conceived of as such, that it should be understood as such, is really kind of ironic, because if you recall it, in Second Peter, towards the end of that letter, Peter is going to give the comment encouraging his readers to read from Paul as well, but saying, listen, some things in Paul's letters are difficult to understand. So Peter's going to say that about Paul, but Peter may take the cake in terms of passages that are actually difficult to understand. Here's what I want to say to you before we dive into this thing. Brothers and sisters, don't let it trouble you. Don't let it trouble you. Don't let it surprise you. Are you surprised that there should be passages in the Word of God that are difficult for us to understand? I mean, the Word of God is talking to us about the unfathomable riches of God himself. It's talking to us about eternity. It's talking to us about the heart and the souls of mankind, about issues of judgment and about issues of angels. Does it, does it really surprise us that we don't understand every single part of it or every single word of it? The Lord has made clear what needs to be made clear to us, and we do our best to understand all parts of it as well. So don't let it trouble you when you get to passages like the one that we have before us today. And, and so 
while saying that, and I, and I wanted to acknowledge that right up front because we're going to see it as soon as we get into it, as soon as you dig into the particulars of this passage, it gets a little bit tricky in working through what's going on. While saying that, though, I, I think the passage as a whole actually is pretty clear in terms of what Peter is seeking to do here for us, in terms of looking at our suffering in light of Christ. Peter is saying here, you're not just suffering for the sake of suffering, and, and I haven't commanded you to be subject, which was the commands that came in the end of chapter 1 and then into uh, chapter 2 in the beginning of 3. I'm not just saying to you submit or be subject because you don't have the authority or the power to overcome the one who is subjecting you at this time. Peter says, I'm not saying to you, you know, doing good while suffering is kind of like, well, you know, if life gives you lemons, you should make lemonades. You make the best out of a bad situation. So this is what we got. This is the hand that's dealt. We should just do the best we can. He's not saying to us simply that we should be humble because Jesus was humble. We should endure suffering because Jesus endured suffering. We should endure humiliation because Jesus endured humiliation. He's saying endure suffering while doing good because the suffering of Jesus was purposeful and it was efficacious. It wasn't just something that happened to him. That was along the way, he was trying to do good, bad things happened, he made the best of them. That's not it. The suffering was essential to the ministry that God the Father had given to God the Son. The suffering of Jesus is, in fact, what saved you. And, and, and if you look through this, it delivered you from judgment. It delivered the unrighteous from the judgment that was due to us, and that this is seen and it's sealed and it's proclaimed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and his ascension up into heaven and his seating at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In a word, what Peter is saying is what we confess together in our affirmation earlier in the service. The humiliation of Christ is followed by his exaltation and that is the path of salvation. It was laid down by Jesus, and it is the path that we walk as well, humiliation unto exaltation. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever now with his saints to reign. That's the message here. That's the purpose of this section. The purpose of this section is that while Peter is and has and will talk a lot about the suffering of Christ, he says, listen, the suffering of Christ can't be understood, can't be appreciated by you unless you also understand the exaltation of Christ, the glorious reign of Christ, the fact that he's at the right hand of God, that everything is now subject to Jesus. That's what Peter's trying to say. So let's, let's try and do this now. Let's try and work our way through this, this text, and we'll take it one step at a time as we try to understand this. So let's, let's begin together. A little bit of work here. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's a beautiful description 
of the gospel. That's a glorious, wonderful, I hope clear description of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus' suffering has purpose to it. It has saving purpose to it. And so does your suffering. By implication, so does your suffering. It is the suffering of Jesus that was effective unto you being saved. And your suffering, and this is what Peter is saying as well, is an extension and an expression of that salvation not only in you, but as you continue to do good in your suffering, and as you tell people for the reason of the hope, your suffering, like the suffering of Jesus, increases the message, the distribution of salvation. So the suffering of Jesus distributed salvation to all of the unrighteous, and your suffering is also part of what God is using to distribute the message of salvation to the world. There is a uniqueness, of course, to the suffering of Jesus. His suffering was for the sake of our sins. He took what was deserved by us upon himself, body and soul, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he was, in fact, the only truly righteous one. He was the only one who endured suffering, having done only that which is good and unalloyed good. Right? That's what Peter's been talking about here. Peter's been talking about suffering for the sake of doing good. But now he, he can peek a little bit under that as well and say, listen, really, really, there's only one person who has done that which is truly good and then suffered, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered. He was the righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous. And Paul writes this. I mean, this is what we saw in Genesis chapter 6, the unrighteousness of humanity. But Paul quotes the psalmist writing this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul says that's gone out. That's the reality for every single person. But Jesus, the righteous, suffered for the sake of those who were unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What was the purpose of the mission that Jesus had? The purpose of the mission that Jesus had on earth in doing that was to bring us to God. And he did it one time. He did it with a one-time suffering. On, that's what it says here. Christ suffered once for sins on the front of your bulletin. There's Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who are eagerly awaiting him. Christ suffered once, unlike others, unlike priests who had to go back in and out year after year to make atonement and offering for sin. Christ's offering of himself is sufficient, a one-time offering for those who are unrighteousness, unrighteous. And how does all of that sealed? How do we see all of that perfected? Because he was, continuing in the verse then, 18, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. In other words, one might ask this question, how does suffering become a means of salvation and not just a misery? 
And the answer is through the power of the resurrection, through the the victory of the resurrection. Without the resurrection and the ascension, to say, without the exaltation of Jesus Christ, then suffering is just suffering. Death is just death. It's just part of the judgment. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and cursed are you if you just end this story in death and in judgment. But the resurrection takes what would otherwise be judgment and turns it into salvation. That's all clear, I hope. That's really what is going on in that verse 18 for us. And then as soon as we continue on from there, the questions begin. Okay, so the questions begin really at the end of verse 18, and then they continue into 19 and 20. And I'll I'll just read it again to put it out there for us. He was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So we've got a number of questions that are going to stand out to us here. What does it mean when we say that he was made alive in the spirit? Are we talking about uh, something before his bodily resurrection? Uh, We're going to ask questions about where did he go, in which he went. Well, where did he go? When did he go there? He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits who are in prison? What? did he in fact proclaim to the spirits who are in prison? And then, of course, we move into Noah, uh, and the time reference takes us in one sense back to Noah from verse 19 going into 20. (laughs) And then we go baptism, resurrection, ascension, and reign. So it gets dicey real quickly uh, towards the end of 18 and then into and through the rest of the passage. I want to give you at least a way to think of this initially that maybe, I hope, might be helpful for us. Think about verse 18, the one that is very clear for us, as kind of laying a foundation here. And the foundation that is laid in verse 18 is of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came, he suffered, he died, he was raised up again, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the gospel foundation that is laid right there. So his suffering was purposeful. And then in order to build on that, Peter takes two examples. He takes, in verses 19 through 20, an example from the Old Testament. And he says, all right, let me show you how this played out. Let me show you how the preaching of the gospel, the salvation of the Lord, and the judgment was accomplished in the Old Testament. And then he takes us. He takes the baptism, or his readers at the time, he takes the baptism in our present circumstances and says, all right, let me show you how that applies to you. And then finally, he says, let me show you in the last verse of our section, 22, let me show you how that culminates in the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father above all rule and all authority. So, so think of it that way. So 18 is our base, an Old Testament, a present day unto the culmination which we find in Jesus. But the questions are there. Is this describing, is this passage describing a literal descent into hell by uh, Jesus in the Spirit? Uh, What did Jesus preach there? Did he preach a second chance to people who had died before uh, the coming of Christ? 
Did he go there to proclaim simply his victory? Uh, did he go into some place to deliver spirits that were otherwise held captive until he came and delivered them out of some place in particular, whatever the place is to which he went? Or is Jesus talking, or is Peter talking about here, Jesus going and preaching to fallen angels, declaring his victory? Uh, that actually is the most current and uh, most evangelical interpretation. It's not the one I'm going to take of this passage, but it's one that's out there because we are talking about angels here as we get down to the end of our section. Now, frankly, if I tried to take us right now through every variant of this passage, two things. One, it would be way too long, and I'm telling you because I've done it, it would leave you very dizzy by the time we were done this thing. We'd be all over the place. If you've ever studied it, if you ever opened up a commentary and tried to figure out, okay, what exactly is going on here, you know what I mean. Instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what it seems to me that Peter is trying to say to us here in this section. I want to try and communicate it for us with, with what seems to me as much truth as we can, as much understanding as we can as we look at this. So let's then work again together through it. And I'm sorry, this is a working sermon. That's the only way to do this one. So at the end of verse 18, we need to start here. We read that he's being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the first thing that we've kind of got to ask here is what does that exactly mean? The, the reality is that spirit can mean a lot of different things in Scripture. You can be talking uh, about the Holy Spirit when you reference the Spirit, made alive in the Spirit, just capitalize the S that is there. You can be talking about the human spirit or just humans in general, or you can be comparing the spirit and the soul as synonymous compared to the body or you can talk about demons, or you can talk about angels, and all of those use the word spirit. So you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, what exactly are we talking about here made alive in the spirit? Because if we get off on the wrong foot, then we're in a, a different zone altogether. Here's what I would say. The context here suggests that the purpose is not, in fact, to contrast the corporeal with the incorporeal, as if this is describing some kind of an intermediate state between, if you will, Good Friday and Easter. That this, that's not the time frame that we're talking about right here, that between those two things, he's raised in the spirit, but he's not yet made alive in bodily form. That instead, the emphasis here is kind of a Pauline way of saying this as well. The contrast that is being made is between what would be a fleshly body, and this is to use, or natural body, to use Paul's language, and a spiritual body. So the natural body is one that you and I have. This is the natural body. It is subject to decay. It is subject to cor corruption. It can be subject to suffering as well. The resurrected body or the spiritual body is not non-corporeal, but it is not subject to decay. It is a perfected body, if you will. And so I think that's what the, the point that's being made right here. That's Pauline language from 1 Corinthians 15. So Peter here isn't speaking of an intermediate state about just the spirit of Jesus, but instead of the new spiritual state of Christ where the suffering has been completed and the incorruptible part has been donned by him in his 
body now that has been raised. And so it's a statement about the resurrection in totality by the power of the Spirit. And here's what we want to recognize with that then, that when you, when you then look at where he goes from this, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, what we're talking about here is, is the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, the message of the gospel. And that proclamation of salvation to be found in Jesus Christ is, in fact, a message that has been there from the very beginning of the world. Why? Because, as Scripture calls him, he is the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. And what that means, then, is that any time anyone has heard the saving word from God of the forgiveness of sins, of the granting of righteousness through faith, which takes us then all the way back to the book of Genesis, they are hearing the message of the gospel. They're hearing about the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the only one through whom anyone has ever been saved. So Peter illustrates this, and I'm, I'm going I'm to work us, I have to work us through 20 and then bring us back up to 19 by taking us to the time of Noah. And he takes us to the time of Noah, it seems to me, to give an analogy between what the people were experiencing to whom Peter was writing and the experience of God's people at the time of Noah. At the time of Noah, the world was wicked, it was evil, it was set against the people of God and against the ways of God, and the people of God were few. They were small, right? That's the idea. And that's the exact same thing that Peter's trying to say to the believers then, uh, that the believers to whom he is writing right now, is you feel this way. You feel that the world is against you, that you don't have a leg to stand on in this world, but you're not the first ones ever to have experienced a time like this. And so he takes back to the time of Noah. And during the time of Noah, even though the world was wicked, and even though the world was about to be judged, while the ark was being built, two other things were happening. And this is what Peter's working through here uh, in the days of Noah. The two other things that are happening while the ark is being built is one, God is being patient during that time. Verse 20 says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So while the ark is being built, it is a time of God's patience. But something else is happening as well. While God was being patient, there was a proclamation that was going on during that time. It was a twofold proclamation. It was a proclamation of a man in the midst of a wicked world who was doing that which God had commanded. In the Genesis story we read over and over, Noah did what God had commanded him to do. There's a proclamation then in the good work that Noah is doing, and then in 2 Peter, the next letter, Peter calls Noah that preacher, that proclaimer, that herald of righteousness. So during that time of God's patience, Noah is preaching to them. He's preaching to the people of his day the good news of salvation. There is a way to be saved. I'm building it right in front of you at the command of God. There is a way to be saved. Proclamation is 
taking place, and that's, that's then go back up to 19 now, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The idea here is that it's Christ and the message of Christ that is always taken hold of and proclaimed by the messengers of God, by the preachers of God, in this case, Noah. Noah takes the message of Christ, so Christ, through Noah, preaches the message of righteousness to whom? To the people of his generation, to the spirits who are in prison. And that's the next thing we have to kind of address here. What does he mean? What does that phraseology mean? We're preaching to the spirits who are in prison. Well, the idea here is, of course, that God's judgment is coming. Jesus, through Noah, is proclaiming a message of judgment on the wicked, on the ungodly, on the evildoers, and deliverance for the faithful, for the righteous, for the doers of that which is good. And so then these spirits who are in prison is to speak, I think, in two ways. In the first place, it's to speak of the contemporaries of Noah, the contemporaries of Noah as the spirits in prison, and then really of men and women in every age who have not trusted in Christ. So let's, let's look at this in two ways. In one sense, when we use the phrase, the spirits who are in prison, we can use that phrase to say that's common of all humanity. And if you wonder if you've ever said that before, you've sung it a number of times, right? And can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Now let's pick it up the language right from here. My imprisoned spirit lay. And so in one sense, all of humanity who has not confessed faith in Jesus Christ could be described as an imprisoned spirit. But we can also perhaps be a little bit more specific here with the text to say that the spirits to whom Noah preached, they may not been, have been considered in that way imprisoned at that time, but when they didn't respond to the preaching of the righteousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that then resulted in their death and their imprisonment at that time. Those who fail to believe and hear the message of Christ are eternally imprisoned. Now, let's take this then and examine the, 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 some of the, the physicality of this. It, it, it would be like this. That proclamation or preaching, I'm using the word proclamation only because it says proclaim here. That proclamation and preaching are somewhat like water. Like the water that God brings into the world. The water that God brings into the world at the time of Noah can be very good. It can be life-saving. It can take Noah and those who are with him, the seven who are with them, and lift them up, right? Or, or the water, like preaching, can also be something that swallows you, that drowns you, that takes you down and down into the depths. And when you look at Scripture, if I just said to you real quickly, what do you think? Water in Scripture, good or bad, up, down. Well, what do you want to do? It's, it's a flood. It's, it's judgment on the one hand. It's all the billows are casting over me. It's Jonah down into the deep, into the recesses, or it's the water of life. Come and partake of the water of life. Jesus at the well with the woman says, I've got this water for you. What is it? Is it good or bad? Well, it's like preaching. It depends. And if, if, if we want to see this, you've got preaching and water that are like this. They're either going to cause you to soar or they're going to sink you down. 
Water's going to do the same thing. And, and really, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Remember the words of Simeon when Simeon held Jesus in his arms. Simeon said, this child is appointed for the what? For the rise and falling of many. For the rise and falling of many who were here. And that's the idea that Peter, I think, is getting at here. And that brings Peter, as he's saying that, as he's, as he's done this, you see what happened in the Old Testament. God's purposes to save were not thwarted, even though there were just a few people. It now makes him think of baptism and the parallels for our experience in baptism. And so Peter sees the connection between these two, between the flood and baptism. Not only physically, they're both involved water, but also in terms of what they represent. You know, when we baptize an infant here, and when we just think real quickly about baptism, we think, well, the water represents the blood, and the water being poured on the head represents the cleansing that takes place. That's all true. That's all true. But in addition to that, there's something else. The waters of baptism, as I put water on a baby's head, if there's too much water, that represents something else. It represents a burial, a death that can come through water as well. So Paul writes this. Paul writes, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. Baptism is not only a kind of cleansing, it's also a kind of burial. And the water is symbolizing the burial that takes place, the judgment that would otherwise take place. But that same water, that same water is the very symbol of that through which we are carried up. We come up out of that. We're raised from that and raised unto newness of life. How? Through the resurrection of Christ. If we have been united with him in a death like his, in a humiliation like his, we shall certainly be united with him in an exaltation like his. Okay, so, so these are the parallels that are going on. The water. The water is doing both that. The preaching is doing both of that. Because in Christ, both things are a reality. We can talk about the power of his suffering, but we talk about the power of his suffering in connection with only the exaltation, the lifting up, and then us being lifted up in him and with him. And then as Peter continues here, he says... Not as the removal, baptism, which now corresponds to this, verse 21, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? Well, the, the idea here is that having received, and this was the Hebrews passage that we use for our word of promise of forgiveness after the confession, having received that sprinkled, that cleansed conscience from the blood of Jesus, having experienced that lifting up out of death and unto life, what do you want to say? What do you want to say to Jesus at that point? Thank you. I love you. I give you the entirety of my life, you who have saved me from the judgment, from the waters that would have otherwise buried me and killed me. It's the appeal to God for a good conscience, or perhaps better, the pledge to God of a new conscience, and that's what Peter's looking at, that even though you've gone down, you're experiencing this suffering. Down here, while you're experiencing that suffering, appeal to God, pledge to God a good conscience, even in the midst of that. And then Peter closes it. He wraps it up. 
by saying, if you're worried, if you're worried that something could undo the salvation that has been given to you, if these people who seem to have power over you seem to have the ability to do harm to you even when you're doing good, if it seems to make you waver just a little bit in your faith, if you have doubts because you see the apparent power, the apparent authority of those who are above you in their godlessness, Peter says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus has now gone into that place. He's now been exalted to the highest of heavenly places. There is nothing anymore that challenges the authority of Jesus Christ. He's been stationed. He's been enthroned in that position And because he's there, when you're in him, your place there is secure as well. He will lift you up. That's where he is. He will lift you up. He will take you to be with himself. In Pauline language, this is Romans 8. This is there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Peter is saying here at the end of this. Now, to bring it back then, and we'll close with this to the purpose of this entire section. Here's what Peter's trying to say to them, to us. You may be few. You may be suffering. You may feel like the world is against you. You may feel like you are lacking in cultural influence. But first of all, God will save. He's not hindered. He's done it before in societies and cultures that are worse than ours. Reference Noah. Christ suffered to bring you to God, and he will bring you to God. Second, God will judge. Right now, he is exercising patience. Peter will expand on this in the second letter. Right now, he is exercising patience. When you wonder, why don't the wicked get what they deserve? The answer is, God is exercising patience with the world, but he will judge. He will judge those who do not respond to the preaching of the gospel. And he will judge them with an eternal damnation. They will be brought down. They will sink under the waters of judgment. Three, while God is being patient, remember, very simply, the two tasks that you have that belong to Noah and that belong to Jesus One, do good, continue to do good, even as you suffer, and two, speak of the hope. Speak of it. While you got the chance, while the patience of God is waiting, speak of the hope. It is what saved you. The preaching of the word. And number four, where you have doubts, remember the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, his enthronement, his authority over all, you will join him. In a condensed form, this is the story of Jesus Christ, from humiliation to exaltation. And Peter is saying that is his path and our path in him as well. Lord, we pray that you would help us 
with a pledge of a good conscience before you, with the reception of a great salvation that we have received, we pray that you would help us to endure well, to wait well in you. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.